Welcome. This is Bleacher Blums, a sports podcast for baseball fans. Now here's David Tuttle and Astros master of banter, Blummer. Yeah, you're talking, Blummer. Yes, and it's because we have a podcast. This is the Bleacher Blums podcast. I am Jeff Blum. I am the color analyst for the Houston Astros. Good buddy and co-host across on the left coast is, of course, David Tuttle. And this weekend, or I had a weekend a while back where I got the opportunity to work at the Houston Open. Now, I use the term work very loosely, not only in this weekend, but also in my career and life. Uh, (laughs) I was able to be a baseball player, which isn't work, but it earned money. And now I get to be a color commentator, which is quote-unquote work because you get paid to do it. But uh, I had the opportunity to work a golf tournament. The Houston Open this uh, past couple of weekends ago was unbelievable. The weather was immaculate. Uh, The players were great. The course was in great condition. Fans were great. And I'm bringing this up because I'm going to talk a little bit about the Houston Open and how much fun and what I actually did. But the funniest thing, the best thing about it was, is that Bleacher Blum fans were out there. No way. And the question, here's, so you heard Tuttle on the other end. Here's the question I keep getting. When are we going to meet Tuttle? Where's Tuttle? I love you and Tuttle. Tuttle's great. Tuttle this. Tuttle, Dude, I'm Tuttled out. And just to let you know, I'm kind of boosting the ego, pumping the ego of, of David Tuttle, my co-host out there on the left coast. Fans are enamored with the idea of David Tuttle on this podcast and the potential for meeting him someday. But Tuttle, you are a well-thought-after man right here in Houston. Awesome. And you know, it's funny. I think Blummer, obviously, you've just worn out your welcome. That's all. They see you everywhere. You're on TV (laughs) and you got the gala and they're like, yeah, they just want, who's that tunnel guy? Is he a fake person? Is he a real person? I don't know. But I appreciate the- uh, Max Headroom. Yeah, there you go. I appreciate the fans' uh, fervor and energy. And um, we do have our first road trip plan. We're going to record a couple podcasts at- uh, the Wynn Casino in Las Vegas early in December, and we invite all the Bleacher Blums fans to come out there. And I am, it's tentative, but my goal is to come out to Houston before spring training. So we're looking, I would hope, Mm. I don't know when you officially leave, but I was thinking like late January, early February would be a really good opportunity to come out and maybe do a podcast at St. Arnold and shake some hands and kiss some babies and, you know, masked or not, you know, we can uh, meet the folks that are, Dying to meet Tuttle and show him a real person. And as soon as they meet me and spend some time with me, they'll be like, Whew, glad that guy left town and we got our blum <laughs> we got our we got our blummer back. <laughs> but hey, Dude, that you know, is hilarious. We'll so keep the wrong, energy whatever. there. <laughs> yeah, but it, it would be a lot of fun. And I know, and you can do I mean, we could do this throughout the course of the season. As long as the Astros are home in Houston, we could, you know, we could hold an event at uh, St. Arnold, which I know a lot of fans would actually love because St. Arnold's been so wonderful to us. And uh we we the timing is there. It's just a matter of getting it right when it's appropriate for you, Tuttle. So the open invitation is always for you out here in Houston for sure. Nice. Because you, your legend is growing. Now you do have to be careful because you know once that idea of David Tuttle is already been created, <laughs> and you have this online podcast persona, and it perpetuates. Man, you get here. There's going to be a lot of pressure. Man, you can't disappoint. Uh, nope, can't disappoint. Hey, I've dealt with pressure before. I mean, look at this, yeah. this terrible Movember mustache I got going. The pressure's on. I will, uh, I will, I will do my best not to disappoint Blummer. You said the Houston Open, and I want to know. We did air quotes with the work thing. Work. I mean, really? Mm-hmm. Does what? What? How does Houston Open and work go together? I mean, your oh, elbow man. and your wrist are probably tired from 
Well, that. The, yeah, from chugging beers. But, you know, the, the well, shoot, yeah, there's plenty of documentary. I mean, shoot, uh. we could probably have a documentary series on <laughs> beers I've chugged. But um, the, it was a lot of fun, and it was great. And it is, it is quote-unquote work just in the sense that it, it's kind of funny. When people are like, how would you get this job? I'm like, well, I work for the Astros. The Astros own the tournament. Uh. And, you know, when they when they – Ask me to. I'm basically the. I'm, I'm. Remember those old Target commercials where they're at the front door going open, open, open. I was basically the guy sitting by my phone, going, "Why? Why haven't they called me yet? Why haven't they called me to do this?" And then as soon as the phone rings and I know who it is and I know what they're going to ask me, I'm like, "Yep, I'm in." You know, and all they have to yeah. do is say, "Hey, do you want to work the Houston Open?" I'm like, "Hell yeah, say whatever." And uh, the reason that is is because I get to go inside the ropes. You know, that's not something that you typically get to do. And having the Houston Open be here in Houston, being affiliated with the Astros, has given me the opportunity to be in there. So for the second year in a row, I have been the honorary starter for the 10th tee. Now, granted, it's not the first tee where all the big boys go off, but uh, I had the opportunity on Saturday and or on Friday and Sunday to be the starter. So I absolutely had a blast. I love uh, the challenge of pronouncing some of these names. I had a guy come up, uh, Buzaden Hoot, uh, was probably one of the tougher ones. And uh, I don't even know if he pronounced it right now. <laughs> what was yeah, that I've name got everybody again? I it sounds it. great. Yeah, but it, you know, it's a lot of fun to meet these guys. I ha I'm handing out official scorecards too. So that's probably the most pressure is making sure that you hand out the right scorecards and make sure that they're not scoring their own card. Um, and, and making sure, you know, to, I mean, they are on point. There's a clock that they bring out. I mean, as soon as this thing clicks to the time they're supposed to tee off, you're like, here's your 1229 tee time. And you rattle off where they're playing out of uh, their name. And then boom, they hit it 300 yards down the middle of the damn fairway. They do these guys, their misses are nowhere near what my misses are. I mean, there's just a little bit of a fade to it. There's a little bit of a draw to it. And, you know, my misses are 30, 40 yards offline. Theirs are like three and four yards offline. It's incredible. I still swing and miss guys. while the ball's on the tee. So, oh, now you're just bragging. No, I do. I just, <laughs> I'll miss the ball on the tee. Like, yeah, whoops. that's a practice swing. Hey, nobody saw yeah, anything. We're that's good. right. That's nobody, you look swing. around, you're loose. like, all right, I'm good. You take a divot yeah. with your driver, you're like, mm, that wasn't so Oh, good. yeah. That's <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah. Could I get the sand to, to cover up my divot here on the T box? Yeah. These guys are aiming, like you said, I want to go 310 and I'm going to be like, I want to be on the right side of the fairway and they're on the left side. And like, ah, oh, I pulled that thing. And you're yeah. like, what? You want to know the difference between the pros <laughs> and the amateurs is the pros stand up and go, how do I want to set up my second shot? That's the right. amateur gets up there and goes, man, I hope I find my ball. That's right. Yep. That's it. But, uh, Perfect. I had, I had a lot of fun doing that. It was great. The fans were out there. It was packed a couple of those last couple of days. So that was a lot of fun. I got all the Tuttle comments out of the way. But I also got to uh, do some uh, Houston Open PGA-type uh, recap shows, little five-minute clips that are on uh, you know Houston Open uh, on Twitter. If you go to at Houston Open, I think it's it, the videos are on there. So if you want to enjoy those, I know I've been trying to retweet them and get them out there. But uh, those have been a lot of fun. And that was my work. That was my off-season job this year, Tuttle. Nice. And it paid you enough to hang out for the rest of the year. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also nice having a pretty good job where I do get paid throughout the course of the year for only working six, seven months a year. But that was not the case back in the day. And a lot of people, we always get these questions, and these are just evergreen where we can just continue to talk about it. And one story triggers another one. But you and I both, when we were playing in the minor leagues, it's a little bit different in the minor leagues, your off seasons. It, there's, there's one of two options. Well, three options. If you were a bonus baby, 
you could probably live off the uh, residual income of having your, your million dollar bonus in the bank, or you were a guy who went and played winter ball if you were highly considered and were prospect status and they wanted you to continue to get at bats, or the third option, and I've had both number two and number three options happen in my life, and I'm going to ask Tuttle about this, is you got an off-season job, like a legit off-season job where you're trying to supplement that income. I know a lot of these issues for minor leaguers have popped up here in recent history and teams are trying to compensate players to uh, allow them to chase that dream. But you and I, we understood the the idea of making three, $400 a month during the season and then trying to get a job in the off-season. Tell us a little bit about what some of the uh, – the winter ball type situations and seasons you played in total. Cause I know you were actually in Puerto Rico, I think one time too. I was, yeah. 1997. I want to say the winter there, but you know, it's really funny because I agree with you. I was still even, I mean, I guess when you play nine years of professional baseball, I mean, you, you at one time have prospect status, then you have roster filler <laughs> status. And then suspect. I remember, well, then you're a suspect. You might've been a suspect <laughs> from the beginning, but then you go, I went from like a starting pitcher to a reliever. And then all of a sudden when I was a reliever, I was throwing harder. And then I kind of went back to a prospect for a minute. And that's when I kind of got, I don't know if it was rejuvenated, but they're like, Hey, we, we could send you to the folly, get more innings as a reliever. Mm -hmm. And then same thing with uh, Puerto Rico winter ball. So I did not have prospect status at 22, 23, but again, at 25, 26, I had regained some prospect status and was able to go to the Arizona fall league. And, you know, we've talked about team USA, but I mean, yeah, there were about six or seven major leaguers on my Team USA, but gosh, the Fall League, who you played against. I mean, Erstad was there when I was there. My team had Alan Bennis, and I already mentioned Jermaine Dye. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I mean, I think most of that team played in the big leagues. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to go back and look at that roster. Jamie Bluma from Wichita State. I think he played in the big leagues with the Royals. So, I mean, yeah, th those, I mean... I got paid more at the Arizona Fall League than I did during my minor league season prior in AA. So I was like, hey, this is what it's like. Yeah, we actually got meal money and you're getting paid and you know, you're still on your way up. So it was a it was a good experience. I mean, obviously when your job is baseball, playing baseball for a, a living, then the off-season job of actually playing baseball instead of working at the coffee shop or the grocery store, um, you know, that trumps it all. I did play uh, for the Mayaguez Indios. Um which is uh, way on the other side of the island in Puerto Rico. So you have everyone's kind of near San Juan, Puerto Rico. So there's two teams in San Juan. There's Caguas. There's all these. But Benji Molina was on our team in Puerto Rico. Jose Pito Hernandez. We had uh, Coco Cordero. You know, remember Wilfredo uh. Cordero, an all-star. Pedro Munoz. And there's guys down there that just play every year. I wouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. if Pedro Munoz is still playing. He's probably like 55 and he's Seriously. still pinch hitting. So it was a really, that experience was a lot of fun, especially for a guy like me who didn't, you know, make it in the big leagues for any extended period of time um, other than uh, than spring training was, I mean, you know, Pedro Munoz had been done with the Oakland A's for years, but there he is like batting fifth in your lineup in Puerto Rico and being a contributor, like, man, I want to face that guy. Pudge played down there. I had to face Pudge. I mean, you know, it's it's their hometown, homegrown guys, and all of them, they don't all play the full season of the winter, but boy, mm -hmm. you get close to play playoff time, and all of a sudden, you know, the middle of their lineup looks pretty damn good, you know? Coco Cordero, Benji Molina, you know, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, and Pudge, you're like, damn. Yeah, so that was, a, that was a really good experience, and that, to your point, you go from prospect, suspect, when they think they have an idea of whether you're going to be a contributor, um, you know, that 
you're playing big league lineups. Granted, the you know, mm-hmm. not everything's on the line. So, did you play some winter ball? I think you mentioned oh, it was like club med Dude. winter ball, but yeah, I, I, I had paid vacations. And to your point, we did get paid better in the uh, off season. It was crazy, but uh, my f- my first big league year, or not my first big league year, my first professional year, I went from playing college ball to. New York Penn League to Instructional League to Australia. I played in the Australian Winter League and had an absolute blast. Yeah, that was a lot of baseball. awesome. (laughs) So, I mean, I I was fried by the end of it. And then, you know, you come back and you immediately go to spring training. But, you know, I was there was a little bit of burnout there, but I was having the time of my life because, like you were saying, it was paid vacation. I went and played in Hunter, Hunter... Australia, and it was two hours north of Sydney. We weren't in like a major city, but it was a great city with great beaches. And we could only play on Saturday and Sunday. So we played a doubleheader Saturday, doubleheader Sunday, and then we had five days off. The reason for that is because every other, there were only four Americans on each team. And the reason for that was every other guy that filled out that roster had a nine to five job during Monday through Friday. It was unbelievable. So we, we would uh, go to the beach, surf, uh, you know, uh, bodyboard, all kinds of stuff in between, and then uh, play on the weekends and had an absolute blast doing that. Uh, we had a good time. We were playing on converted rugby fields. You know, one field would be 390 to left field, 390 to right field, 290 to center. It was <laughs> it was hilarious. You know, they're just trying to make these fields fit these rugby fields. The next year, I get a phone call. Hey, we want you to go play winter ball. And I said, sure, yeah, let's go. And I'm, I'm anticipating Venezuela, uh, Dominican, uh, uh, you know, Puerto Rico. Guess where I go? Hawaii. I, I had a two-month vacation in Hawaii playing in the, win- the Hawaiian Winter Baseball League. My manager was Jeff Bannister, which is a whole other can of stories, uh, put, you know, dealing with that. I had an absolute blast doing that, too. You know, I shared a uh, one-bedroom condo with... Uh, Man, who was it? Brad Fulmer and Michael Barrett. That oh, was yeah. that was eye opening to say the least. On the on the one extreme, you've got Brad Fulmer, who's just crazy. I've got great stories about him, and then you've got Michael Barrett, who was coming out of, you know, like Alpharetta, Georgia, out of a Christian academy, and then you had me in the middle, and it was just <laughs> you poor had to Michael pick Barrett. Who, let's just yeah. say I might have I might have contributed to his issues a little yeah. bit. <laughs> you, you got you were pulled in every direction. You were just the you were the oh, the man. guy in the middle. That's funny. It was funny. And then, uh, like you know, like we talked about the following year is when you actually, that was the first time I actually felt like, holy crap, I've got a chance because yeah. the Arizona Fall League, shoot, it's even being televised, I believe, now a couple of games on MLB Network. This is how much they, how highly they regard the Arizona Fall League. And I think you and I were kind of in the infancy of what the Fall League was intended to do. And it brought in the big boys. I mean, yep. we were going in there and playing against dudes. You know, everybody that I ended up seeing in the big leagues, I believe, was playing in that uh, Arizona Fall League. So that's where I really kind of felt like, hey, I've got a chance. Because you keep up with them, you're competing against them, and it just came down to where you're going to get that break to be able to break through and get in the big leagues. But the Arizona Fall League was awesome. I absolutely love that. It was a blast. It was a, it was a quicker season. Um, it was an intense season, but it was it was so competitive, and that's what I loved about it. Yeah, I was going to say it was the first time probably where it wasn't a vacation vacation because you, you know yeah. you're like there's seven GMs in town, and you know you didn't know if they were in town for what. But like you said, uh, your was whole like team was you? big leaguers. It's yeah, a, that's I, a really good point because the fa- there weren't a lot of fan fans, but at the same right. time, I mean, there would be a section full of GMs and scouts, man. Yeah, I think the fall league started in '92, and we were saying I played in '95, and I think you played in '96. So we're yep. looking at you know two, three years in, and I think every team had. 
younger prospects. I think now, like you said, they just load those rosters with all the guys they think are going to have. So, but yeah, I mean, like Erstad was on a team that we played against. I mean, Erstad, you know, was he the fifth or sixth pick in the draft at one point? So, I mean, they had, you know, I mean, Alan Bennis's brother was already in the big leagues, Andy, and mm-hmm. Alan was on his way up, and he was a big prospect. And I mean, I believe he made an All Star team in the big leagues. So, I mean, you know, that those are the only guys that come to mind. But they, I mean, it was loaded for sure. And I think you're right. Keeping up with Joneses, that's my first time of having an experience where um, I was like a real reliever. I mean, they treated it like the big leagues. Like I was right handed mm-hmm. sinker ball guy. I'd come in sometimes. I would get two outs. Um, you know, well, and then they would take me up. out. Yeah, they'd match up, then they'd take you out, and you're thinking, oh, well, I, I would normally stay in the game. They're like, no, 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 we're mm-hmm. doing matchups here. Or you'd come in and walk a guy or give up a hit, and then they'd take you out, and you're like, oh, that's oh, it. Wow. That's that's all I got today. But, but you know, to, to your point, I mean, that was real big league baseball. I mean, they were taking it seriously. They wanted you for matchups. They were trying to get a feel for, you know, they weren't trying to extend you. They were trying to um, mm-hmm. get a feel for what you could do, and it was pretty pretty darn competitive, so it was fun. It was a it was a really good time for me because as I said I went from suspect back to prospect and got to play there and then winter ball in Puerto Rico and um, you know got me closer to the big leagues believe it or not and I don't know you know what ultimately kept me out but I, I definitely I think I showed out pretty well in those in those environments and there was, those were good times those were better off season jobs than I had prior so, I know I want to talk about that a little yeah. bit you know because if you're not playing winter ball and we already talked about you know I wasn't a high draft brown pick I didn't have you know uber money in the bank and uh, you were probably in the same boat but when you didn't have that uh that winter ball paycheck to rely on you you went back to your prospective town and kind of had to find a job did you actually have off-season jobs in between some of those minor league seasons when you weren't playing winter ball Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think I got smart after a while. I went back to school, so I finished. So every other year I went back to school. Oh, good for I you. That's that. awesome. That's yeah, something I so, never did. I, I, I yeah. just I continued to work. You know, I think it's ultimately how I went to Santa Clara in general. I mean, there were a couple other schools that offered mm-hmm. me scholarships, but my dad was always a big education guy, but I remember that. And I, I think I've told this story before, but I was drafted in 91. And uh, I think I was taxed out. I did you know, 150 innings in college, you know, 60 innings with Team USA, and then they wanted me to go to instructional league. I was taxed. So the next year in 92, I was like, well, I got to, I mean, my arm can't handle, you know, another 275 innings or whatever over 12 months. So I went to, uh, I went back to school. So nice thing, Santa Clara on a quarter system. So I went back to school 92, 94, 96. And by 96, I was done. So that was funny. I went to win, uh, Arizona Fall League in 95, and then, like I said, Puerto Rico in 97, but I was able to get my degree in between. So, you know, I think sitting here with you now and thinking about, you know, life and how it deals you these certain things, yeah, I would have loved to have played in the big leagues for any amount of time. But the fact that I got my degree and kind of finished that up, that was part of the off-season job as well. But during that time, I worked in a coffee shop, and we've talked about how I became a coffee snob or an aficionado, but... <laughs> It served me well, man. I make lattes for my wife, and that still endears myself to her after 20 years. But mm-hmm. I learned how to make a mean cappuccino. So I've got a really killer coffee maker and uh, able to do all that. And I attribute that for just having you know three years of working as a barista, which is, a like I said, I can't throw a baseball the way I used to, but man, I can still make a mean cappuccino. So I, don't, I guess we could say that lasted or stayed with me longer than, than most. So what about That's you? Awesome. What was... 
Do you have an off-season job that stands out? Hey, I'll make you a cappuccino when you come visit, by the way. Yeah, give and take, man. I can make you a beer, and then you can make me a cappuccino. That sounds perfectly fair to me. <laughs> you can make me a beer. I like that even better. <laughs> it's called Here popping the top. Yeah, exactly, go. dude. Yeah. Uh, no, I love that. And quality skill set to, to keep the wife happy, by the way. So congratulations yeah. to you on that. Um, yeah, I did. And you know what? That's one thing I kind of discounted was the fact that you could, you know, guys do go back and go to school and get those degrees. So that was brilliant on your part to be able to accomplish that, get that degree and obviously helping you in what you're doing now. Uh, the off season for me was more work. I, you know, I just wanted to continue to, you know, be able to have money to be able to go out and have fun and work and, and be able to chase that dream. So a lot of what I did in the off season was, uh, you know, along with working it out, keep in mind, Tuttle's going to school, he's working and getting ready for the next season. So these off seasons are, are slammed with uh, opportunities to try and get <laughs> better busier. at everything. Yeah, you are. Busier during the off season. That is so true because it's, an, it's a nine to five job at school and then you've got to make sure that you're honing in on your craft. And that's probably the hardest thing. But uh, yeah, I had crazy jobs all over the place. The first couple of, first couple of times I went back to Berkeley, uh, where I was living right after school, and I should have gone back to school. But we were on a semester system, so it was really tough. To And they didn't have the uh, correspondence, correspondence classes. I couldn't do anything online because I think the internet was just invented when I was in school. But, <laughs> I know it was when yeah, we were there. Yeah, we were so archaic. Uh, so I went back and you know worked at the local... Uh, uh, Sporting goods store, stocking shelves. You know, one time it was stocking shelves. The next year it's out on the floor selling shoes. Then it's, uh, like you said, you're you're working at a coffee shop or a bagel shop. And then you're doing, you know, bartending. I'm I'm a terrible bartender, but I can make a killer dirty martini. Uh, That was probably the worst job I ever had. And I only did it for maybe a month. And I was like, okay, peace. I don't want to get yelled at or get, you know, get, watch people get drunk. It It was not entertaining to me. And then uh, one of the craziest jobs was I, I and mo- most well-paying jobs was with UPS. But the interesting part about it was is that m- the hours were 9 to 1. Not 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. <laughs> I was working that overnight, you know, graveyard shift. And I would show up at 9 p.m., and I would get in there, and they would put me in the end of a big rig, one of those semis, those big rigs. And I would be looking at the back end of an empty big rig, and at the other end, coming in the open doors, was a conveyor belt. And about every three or four feet would be a package of a various size. And I would have to check. I had a, I had a list of about three zip codes, I think, that I had to double check. And I'd have to check the address and then start building a wall of boxes. And as soon as I got done with that wall, I had to move the conveyor belt, start a new wall. Dude, Tetris was my game, and I was playing it in real life. But, man, it was was a lot of work, and for that amount of time, nonstop, I was building this wall of boxes for everybody. So if you didn't get your packages maybe between 1993 (laughs) and 1998, it was probably my fault. But... It was, a, it was a learning experience. Uh, I appreciated every minute of it, and I got paid pretty good to do that. That was like the first time I was getting like $10, $12 an hour at that time back in the yeah. day, and I was like, dude, I'm getting broke off, man. Beers yeah. are on me. Yeah. No, that is a good-paying job, but I, you know why they did it four hours fatigue-wise, but also— I was gassed. I mean, it was yeah, intense. It's, yeah, there's no break. I mean, it's a, it's a skill set, so you learn something. I mean, that might have helped you hitting. I remember Greg— <laughs> 
Greg Jeffries yeah, was in sports. I wanted to get sports. better so I didn't have to do that the rest of my life. Well, that might have helped too. But <laughs> Greg Jeffries used his dad's drill was they put he had tennis balls and he was stand forty yeah. feet away and he put numbers on it, right? Ones or twos, and you have to say the number. Like you pick up the mm. number and you like looking at zip codes and getting them on the right wall, zip code right wall. I mean, it's I mean, I know it's not hand eye or eye hand, but I mean your brain had to be, your synapses had to be firing. So, hey, yeah, you can attribute right. UPS for helping you get to the big leagues. I mean, come on. Yeah, that was pretty funny. That was, that was a lot of fun to actually go through. And uh, the experiences, the people you meet, I mean, just so so many of those skills translate into sport. And then so many of the skills in sport translate into business. You know that as well as I do. People hiring yeah. athletes and wanting that yeah. expertise. But uh, another thing I wanted to hit on before we shut down this podcast, just nice, quick little off-season update podcast that we can let everybody kind of get some insight into what Tuttle and I did in the off-season. And not many people know this about my career because the first thing you say is, oh, we played for 14 years. Everything went great. It was perfect. But during the off-season was probably probably the most uh, interesting time and the most anxious time I ever had as a big leaguer because of this one fact. Playing 14 years in the big leagues – Comprehend this. I had 12 one-year contracts. Granted, some of them had an option attached to them that got picked up or vested, so I did have a little comfort maybe a couple of times, but I never signed a a multi-year contract until the last two years of my career with the Arizona Diamondbacks. So it was at this point every offseason where I would be on the horn with my agent going, okay, what options do we got? You got to start getting my name out there. And I was probably one of the more fortunate guys in my agency because I was on the lower tier, but my agent had to work his tail off. So I always appreciate, uh, uh, you know, Joel Wolf, who's my agent still to this day, and the work he put in because every year I had to field phone calls. I had to talk to GMs. My agent had to talk to GMs. We would have to try and negotiate these contracts and figure out where I was going to be able to fit in. So if I wasn't being traded, I was spending the offseason trying to find a job. And for 12 straight years, every offseason, except for maybe one or two, I had to sweat out maybe until about Christmas time to uh, know I was going to be playing in the big leagues the next year. And that's probably one of the more interesting things that a lot of people don't know about some of these other guys is that every offseason is more or less a negotiation to try and get a contract for the next year as opposed to some of these multi-million dollar guys that you read about. But uh, does that does that shock you at all or does that surprise you at all uh, knowing that uh, you, you, could, you could have played in the big leagues that long and only had uh, 12 one-year contracts? It was, it was crazy. Yeah, I love. I mean, I love the insight, and I think you know. Obviously, as you moved on in your career, you built some good relationships and earned your way uh, into other contracts. But I do think that you know, having four girls that were young at the time, and you know, maybe that one year where all right, you're five or six years in, but you're like, now I'm going to get a multi-year deal, or you know, I hit a home run to win the World Series. Like maybe the the White Sox that, will that have me. Huge. Yeah. They they'll have me for two or three years, and you're thinking, oh, you know, Joel calls you and says, hey, well you're a free agent again and you know this is what our options are and you're kind of like whoa i mean it's a it's what do they always say it's like pride swallowing like you know yeah. as an ego as as a you know as an ego driven athlete or somebody who has a competitive drive and some confidence in their ability it's got to be challenging to go through that 12 years in a row and then i think there's probably some level where um you know 
you don't get comfortable with it, but you understand that that's what the off season is going to be like. So just like all True. of these things, probably by year seven or eight, you're like, all right, honey, you know, we're hoping to sign before Christmas this year. So that's the goal. <laughs> and I think, but it, but I do, I think it, it's a testament to you and, you know, just what we had started this podcast with about grinding it out, because as you know, in the minor leagues, everything's year to year. Um, you know, after it's always at the club's behest. I think when you get drafted, you can't go anywhere, <laughs> but they can release you at any time. So, um, you know, I felt like that that was my career. And I remember being with the Diamondbacks kind of in year seven, eight or nine and the player development guy, along with one of the, you know, the assistant GM saying, you know, we love having you in the organization, you know, obviously I wasn't costing them a friggin' dime, but the, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're not a suspect per se, but you definitely are a guy that we can count on for innings here, innings there. Yeah. And, you know, we will keep you around. You set a good example. You work hard, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I mean, we talk about situations all the time. So, I mean, you obviously got some people in your corner. We've talked about Kevin Towers on this podcast before. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to kind of get yourself in the right situation with the right mentality and the right, um, I don't know, the right frame of mind. And you can make anything happen. And I think it's a testament to you and a testament to, you know, just the, I, I don't know, what whatever path you were on, um, you know, you dealt with and lived with it and, you know, Maybe Joel feels like he worked his ass off for you too, but who knows? He had to. <laughs> he, yeah, had no, to. he had to. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate the fact that he did. Uh, yeah. and, and so that's going to do it for another podcast. I know this is a little bit quicker, a little more abbreviated, but uh, we had a good time talking about our off season. I'm sure some of these stories will pop back up that we will kind of touch on because of the experience have been so great for Tuttle and I. Both grateful for the ability to play the game, graduate from school, uh, for Tuttle getting that degree and myself being able to play in the big leagues. But a lot of that wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for the military. We appreciate everybody who is serving or has served, uh, everybody on the front lines, everybody that is running into harm's way, first responders, essential workers. We greatly appreciate you, and we are grateful for another great podcast. You can get to Tuttle at Real David Tuttle on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find myself at Blummer27 both on Twitter and on Instagram. And of course, check out at Bleacher Blum for all the latest updates and some fun stuff on there. Total nice work, dude. Nice quick one. I think we're heading into the off season with some good stuff, man. Unfortunately, we don't have to work any more of those crazy ass jobs. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm still making coffee and I enjoy it. Um, folks, uh, if you're over the age of 45, please get screened for colorectal cancer. And as always on this podcast, we encourage you to get after it and believe it. Believe it. Good deal. But yeah, Blummer, you're the best.